welcome to the We Talk Health podcast, the official podcast for West Tennessee Healthcare. Please be advised that this podcast is not intended to replace any medical advice. Always follow your medical professional's advice and direction. Nothing said in this podcast is intended to supersede or supplement the direction of your medical caretakers. If you have any questions, please reach out to us at wetalkhealthpodcast at gmail.com and we will do our best to answer any questions you may have. Welcome to another episode of We Talk Health. My name is Will Cashagro, and today we're going to be discussing cancer screenings that are recommended by Kirkland Cancer Center through West Tennessee Healthcare. Joining me today is Gina Myrickle and Dr. Jeff Kovalik. How are you all today? Doing well. Good. Doing great. Awesome. Thanks for coming in. And thanks for being willing to do this podcast. I know cancer screening is a very important topic for really anyone to hear. So thanks for being willing to talk about it. So Gina, can you kind of define what uh, a cancer screening is and tell me the difference in screening procedures for different tests? Well, the definition of screening is kind of, I mean, I guess you could say the evaluation or the investigation Mm -hmm. of something. So screenings are not done because of a known problem. It's investigating to make sure nothing is there. Right. So that's kind of the difference. We kind of divide things up into screening procedures and diagnostic procedures and screening procedures are those that are done on a regular basis Mm -hmm. and it's totally based on evaluating and investigating to make sure you're in good health gotcha so diagnostic procedures on the flip side of that are done because you have a complaint, a symptom, a problem, mm-hmm. you know, something's been identified that is requiring that procedure or that test. I see. So that okay. kind of explains the difference in very layman terms. Mm-hmm. Now, Dr. Kovlik can jump in and he can define them in a more medical and clinical sure. way, but that's just kind of layman's terms. Perfect. So Dr. Kovlik, why is it important to have screenings and tests and procedures done? Well, it's important for a number of reasons, but of course the primary importance is to save lives. If you uh, diagnose a cancer early, inevitably you're going to find it in an earlier stage when it is less likely to have spread. So we can go into this in more depth further in this podcast, but to answer your question, saving lives is, is the primary importance. Also, if you, if you find a cancer at an earlier stage, you know, let's say if take, for example, uh, lung cancer as, mm-hmm. as an example. If you find just one spot in the lung and you treat it, then you just have to deal with that. But let's say you wait till the lung cancer spread to the lymph nodes, which would make it a stage three, the, the lymph nodes in the middle part of your chest. Then you're treating the middle part of the chest too. You have a lot more side effects. You can hurt the esophagus. Or if it's stage four and it's already spread to the brain, then you have to treat the brain. And so it's not only saving lives, but it's also saving a lot of side effects and toxicity from treatment that come with catching a tumor at a later stage. So staging helps in a number of ways. Gotcha. So Gina, why do you feel people are reluctant to have cancer screenings? Uh, Are they covered by insurance or do you have to pay out of pocket? Well, I think the money, the financial side Mm -hmm. of medical testing is always kind of a drawback for some people. So whether your insurance pays or not, whether you have insurance or not, Mm -hmm. you know, that's always a, a contributing factor in decision makings. But I also think 
And Dr. Kolick, do you agree? Don't you think that sometimes people are fearful of finding things? You know, they feel like if the, if you don't know it, it's not there. Right. But if you have a screening and it's identified, you have to deal with it. Yeah, very much so. Uh, there's denial. We all have denial. We don't want to be told bad news. And there is that fear of finding something that's going to bring on a lot of pain. But, you know, with screening, you know, one of the big factors with screening is knowing your risk factors. Mm-hmm. There are different risk factors for different types of cancer. One of those risk factors is knowing your family history, mm-hmm. because we do know that there is a lot of uh, genetics, uh, you know, heredity factors for cancer diagnoses. And, and so knowing your family history, if you can, not everybody can, but sure. if you do know your family history and your risk factors are kind of divided into things you can control and things you can't. Right. You know, aging, your family history, those things are things you can't control. Mm-hmm. Things you can control that we know are impact a cancer diagnosis. Tobacco use is probably the number one. Obesity, just nutrition in general, mm-hmm. you know, what we eat, activity levels, all of those things play in to good health overall, but also can play a very much uh, important part of knowing your risk. Sure. Taking certain hormones like birth control, things like that can play in to risk as well. So a lot of things, like I'm, I'll get personal here for a minute. Sure. So I have Crohn's disease. Mm-hmm. My dad had colon cancer. So I have a lot of risk factors for developing colon cancer myself. Sure because of that. So I know that I need to be followed very closely. Now, my colonoscopies are not screening anymore. They're diagnostic because of the issues I have. But I had to start screening colonoscopies earlier Mm -hmm. because of my risk. And so that's just an example of why we need to know that. If you know that your mother or your sister had breast cancer, then you would be one to start mammograms earlier and so those are all contributing factors into knowing that you need to have screening but that also adds to the reluctance of having a screening because we know well my mom had cancer if I have a mammogram what if they find it on me right it's the the big what if question so it's that going to that denial now insurance does play an important part Mm -hmm. most insurance policies either have a part on their policy that will cover screenings so it's pretty cut and dry it's pretty clear you know what will be covered how much will be out of pocket that type of thing so you can work with your pay your your insurance companies to to figure that out. Medicare has very straightforward guidelines on what they cover and what they don't. And so it's pretty clear. Now, if you don't have insurance, that is a big factor there because we all know medical care screenings are not cheap. Right. Is cost there. The one, you know, we try to do everything we can to help people get to what they need. Uh, we, we are very fortunate in the community that we have Christ Community Medical Center, you mm-hmm. know, Health Center here. Mm-hmm. Uh, so uh, they will, they're like a primary care for people who don't have insurance can oh, go there. I, I didn't realize We've that. We've okay. got UT Family Practice that will see patients. So there are avenues to get into primary care to say, hey, 
I'm this age, do I need to start screening? And then they can help get you funneled into see specialist for screenings. We do have one safety net program set up for breast cancer and cervical cancer. And that is through the state of Tennessee and the federal government funds that as well. And so we're very fortunate to have that program. Women that meet the age criteria that uh, meet certain other financial criteria and things and have Mm -hmm. no insurance uh, or are very underinsured qualify for this. So all they have to do is reach out to uh, outside of Madison County, they can reach out to their health departments and get funneled to providers that participate in in those programs. Here in Madison County, they can go to Christ Community Center or we have a coordinator that works with that program and you can call her. Her name is uh, Miss Butler and she can help. Her number is 731-541-4161 and she can help get you to a clinic that participates with this program and it covers the mammogram or the ultrasound, the screenings. If you need further testing, it even covers biopsy. Oh, wow. It will, will, if cancer is found, you're automatically enrolled in 10 care. Mm -hmm. So it's very much a safety net program for women with breast and and men with Mm -hmm. breast cancer and for women with cervical cancer. So it's very, uh, we wish we had a safety net program for all cancer types, but those are really the only two that we have right now. And listeners, I'll put that phone number in the description you can find that there. So Dr. Kovalik, how do you determine who needs screening procedures? From what I understand, it's called a risk stratification. Uh, So why is that an important criteria to follow? Risk stratification is very important because that determines who gets what tests. As Gina alluded to, if you've got a family history or if you've got other mitigating circumstances, it's more of a diagnostic endeavor and and the search gets more refined and more focused. So let's just run through the common cancers and, I'll, and sure. we'll go through risk stratification because I think that is an important point. For example, in colon cancer, Gina mentioned one thing in her personal history, Crohn's disease. There's another disease called ulcerative colitis. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are inflammatory diseases of the bowel that have higher incidences of colon cancer. There are hereditary syndromes, familial polyposis you may have heard of is where the, the uh, colon fills with polyps and, and these patients have a very high risk of getting colon cancer at a young age. Mm-hmm. Lynch syndrome is another one, which is a non-polyposis cancer syndrome that is quite prevalent and has to do with mismatch repair genes or genes that don't repair in your colon well and you develop cancer. Those patients are at high risk. People who had radiation earlier in their life are Mm -hmm. at high risk. And so those groups of people that I just mentioned, you don't want to screen those in a normal way and they get excluded from the normal screening criteria that we're going to discuss later, you know, who should be screened at what intervals. Those people need to be screened at much greater intervals. And breast cancer, first of all, if you have a personal or a family history of breast, ovarian, tubal carcinomas, or peritoneal carcinomas, peritoneum is just the lining of the abdomen, and those cancers tend to be very similar to ovarian and breast cancers, uh, and the genetics are the same. So if you have a personal history of those or a family history, that kicks you out of the normal group for breast cancer. If uh, Ashkenazi Jews, which is a genetic group, uh, has a very high risk, and then people who have genetic cancer genes, the most common are BRCA1, BRCA2, but there are many other ones. And, and at the Kirkland Cancer Center, we have a pretty good track history of checking genetics on patients. and 
and factoring that into our treatment plan. And mm-hmm. it, is, it is important. And I won't go into that because that's a whole nother lecture. But in this case, if you do have a BRCA1 or BRCA2, obviously you need to be screened much more intensely because your risk of getting cancer is very high. And then there's a host of things that come from a lady's history. For example, if you have menarche or if you start menstruating at a very early age, if you have menopause at a late age, if you think about it, that's a longer time that there's going to be estrogen in your body. And so longer time for the breast to be exposed to estrogen, which is a something that can cause breast cancer. Gina mentioned taking exogenous hormones, which if you take them for many years, it can increase your risk. Number of pregnancies or time of first pregnancy can factor into your risk factor. So you factor all those things in and you determine as a lady, if they don't have any of those things I just mentioned, then they, they drop down to normal risk. Okay. And I'll just briefly mention prostate. The main thing with prostate is family history, strong family history. Afro-Americans have higher risk of prostate cancer. So if you have a strong family history or somebody who is younger in your family, like your dad got prostate cancer at age 40 or 45, Mm -hmm. you should be screened differently. You know, we could talk on many other cancers, but those are the main ones. Just to give give you an idea of how you stratify risk and what you're basically doing is picking a bunch of criteria which puts somebody at high risk and you're excluding them from the risk, from the normal screening risk group that we go and we recommend screening on. Gotcha. Okay. Dr. Kovlik and I banner back and forth a lot about our age because we're the same age. We're a few <laughs> mo- couple of months difference there, but I've been working in the cancer center with the cancer program for a long time, since 97 now, I guess. Mm-hmm. And I know back during those early years when I was working in the cancer program, we didn't do a lot of genetic testing Correct. on our patients. And looking now at our breast cancer patients, I think we probably do genetic testing on every breast cancer patient now or close to it. Just about. So, about the only ones we exclude now, Gina, are a very old lady, let's say somebody in their 80s who has an estrogen receptor positive tumor, a very favorable tumor. But for the most part, you're right, we, we've turned full... You know, full corner because of the availability of the genetic right. test and because of the predictive power that they have in, in letting us know that somebody's at very high risk. So 20 years ago or so, we would be recommending if your mom, sister, whoever had breast cancer, not knowing the genetics involved, you would be at high risk. But now if I'm tested, if I have breast cancer and I have genetic testing and it's not based on something that could be genetic, then would my family, would my daughters still be recommending earlier screenings or would we base that more on the genetic testing? That's a good question. So if I'm understanding your question right, obviously, if you have a cancer gene, you're going to be screened more favorably. But if you don't have the cancer gene, but you still have breast cancer, yes, your daughter still is at higher risk because of other genes we may not know about or have not identified yet. A strong family history still puts you at a higher risk of getting breast cancer and therefore should be screened more diligently than somebody that doesn't have that family history, even in the absence of those cancer genes. So you kind of alluded to it earlier, but uh, what are some of the current recommendations for screening for some of the major cancers? Well, I'll kind of jump in first and and talk about, you know, breast cancer and cervical cancer, since those are kind of the ones, breast cancer especially, you know, October is Mm -hmm. all pink and and there's so much media. Sure on breast cancer and it's talked about so much and and also you know we've got a very high prevalence of of that too and especially in 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 this area and and breast cancer is one of the the top diagnosed cancers in, in most cancer centers but with breast cancer just like we were talking about with the risk factors that mm-hmm. kind of changes 
your screenings, you know, your ages. So if you do not have any risk, don't know of any risk, generally the recommendation is that you get a baseline mammogram, Mm -hmm. screening mammogram, somewhere between 40 and 45, you know, just to have a baseline to see. And then after that, from 45 through about 55, recommendations are generally for annual screenings. If uh, 55 and older kind of go to every two years. So that's kind of the ballpark for the recommendations. Okay. And, you know, you'll hear people say, I'm not sure how prevalent it is, but, I mean, you'll hear people say, I have annual mammograms, but I was diagnosed with cancer in between the 12-month period. I felt a lump or something. So it's very important that you utilize screenings for what we said, evaluation, investigation. Just because you had a screening is not a reason to stop paying attention Mm -hmm. to your body or something abnormal or something that you're worried about. Even if you have a screening, if there's something that you notice that's different, you still need to check that out with your primary care doctor or with your GYN. Yeah, and to follow up on that, uh, mammograms have false negative rates, too, that, mm-hmm. that run between 10 and 20%. So as Gina said, you could get a screening mammogram that was you were told was negative and normal, but let's say you feel a mass in your breast. You should certainly see your provider and get that looked into because, because there's a significant proportion of patients that, that you'll find things on clinically that weren't visible radiographically. Right. There also is a difference in the pickup rate. The whole re- to back up for a minute, the whole reason we do mammography is studies have now shown in hundreds of thousands of ladies that it saves lives. And it will decrease the mortality if you take all comers about 20%. So, you, so the breast cancer mortality has decreased 20%. However, as Gina was saying, as you get older, you have a higher risk of getting breast cancer. So you pick up more cancers in ladies in their 60s than in their 40s because ladies in their 40s don't get breast cancer that often. Mm-hmm. Also, ladies in their 40s have very dense breasts generally, and, and they're not as fatty. They have more glandular nature, so it's harder to detect. So really, the proportion of ladies that are helped from a mortality standpoint in their 40s is lower. It's about an 8% benefit in their 40s, maybe about a 15% benefit in the ladies' 50s, but maybe a 35% mortality benefit in their 60s. Mm-hmm. So just to... To stress one point there is, is that especially in your 60s, it's important to get to get mammograms regularly. But it's important all the way along, as Gina mentioned. But but the older you get, up until 75, which is where the, most of these studies stopped, the older you get, the more important it is to follow through on it. So especially when you're in your 60s and early 70s. And then even after 75, most societies recommend mammography if you think your life expectancy is 10 years or greater. Mm-hmm. So. So just because you're 80 years old, for example, you still can get a mammogram if you're young and vital and still doing going strong because it could save your life there too. Yeah. And, you know, to back up to what we were talking about earlier of kind of the fear of finding out you have cancer or finding sure. out something's wrong, you know, when you go in for a mammogram, even if you don't have a, one problem, you go in for it, the thought is in your mind, what if they find something this right. time, you know, or, or whatever. So the, the fear is there. But with screening tests, you know, that you can identify benign issues or something that's not cancer, you know. And, and if sometimes a woman may feel a cyst or a lump or something abnormal in their breast, scared to death that it's cancer, but finds out that it's not. Mm-hmm. And so with screenings, 
that is one thing that comes out of that as well. Peace of mind. You yep. can identify that something is not a malignancy or not cancer, but still needs to be followed. Right. Because some of the the diseases he was talking, I know I'm jumping around cancer sites here, but going to the to the colon cancer, you know, all of those diseases he mentioned have to be followed very closely, even though right. it's not cancer. But with the diseases in the breast is the same way. You can have benign problems that are not cancerous, but, you know, you still have to follow. Right. And there's still recommendations there to follow up with maybe a mammogram more often than annually or an ultrasound, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and sometimes even MRI is used now nowadays. MRI really isn't a good screening tool because there's no data to show that it decreases breast cancer mortality in the way that mammography does, but MRI is a good tool for or younger patients sometimes, or certain circumstances like Gina's describing, maybe you've got introductal cancer, which is a very early form of cancer, or or something called a radial scar, which is a benign tumor, but it looks like a cancer, and you need to investigate those and, and make sure they're not real cancers mm-hmm. in the sense that they're invasive and they could metastasize. So we've talked a lot about colon cancer and breast cancer, but what about like testicular cancer or prostate or lung cancer? Sure, and, and on colon, I do want to mention, I want to go back to colon for one thing because it's important because a lot of people have polyps. Mm -hmm. There's different kinds of polyps. The most common type of polyp is called an adenomatous polyp. An adenoma just means gland. So it's a gland forming benign polyp. But if you have a polyp that's greater than one centimeter in size, those are considered aggressive and those people need to be screened differently and and, and they're, they're not screened under the normal circumstances. And then there are different kinds of polyps which have dysplastic features, meaning under the microscope, they look more aggressive, like they're leaning towards cancer, but not quite cancer or villous tumors. The, the term is villous. Those are also more aggressive. Those patients can't be kind of followed the same way. Mm-hmm. Now, prostate is a little different going to prostate to answer your question, because here's the problem with prostate cancer. In the early days when PSA was first found, which was about 30 years ago, there was a huge People use PSAs, which is PSA is prostate-specific antigen. It's a blood test that most of your listeners are well aware of. And it's only made in two things, prostate gland and prostate cancers. And so if it goes up, you get concerned that you have prostate cancer. So in the early days, hundreds of thousands of prostate cancers were diagnosed. But what we have found over the years is they found a lot of prostate cancers that turn out not to be very troublesome. And, and furthermore, autopsy studies have been done on men in their 70s or 80s, and there's a very high percentage of these men, older men, have prostate cancer cells in their prostate gland. So if you biopsy them, that's what you get back. And it turns out that many of those are not as important. And so because of that, there was this concern that we were over-treating too many patients with radiation and surgery, mm-hmm. prostatectomy. And these are not benign interventions. They have side effects. What they did is they launched a big study. It was called the PLCO study, prostate, lung, ovarian cancer. and in the study, one subset of the study was they checked PSAs versus not getting a PSA. And they found checking a PSA did not improve your survival or your prostate cancer mortality. Criticism of the study is a lot of people in the control arm were getting their PSAs checked. And so there is debate over whether PSAs ultimately affect mortality. And most people think it, it helps a little bit. Mm-hmm. So to get to your point, most societies now use the term shared decision-making. In other words, we, we should get together with our patients and discuss what their individual risks are and decide whether to get that PSA. Because a lot of times you get a PSA and it's elevated for different reasons other than cancer. 
And then you may end up getting tests that are unnecessary, like a biopsy uh, of the prostate or an MRI of the prostate gland. And those things can open up a can of worms that maybe are unnecessary. Sure. And Gina, you can talk about this, but we used to do prostate cancer screens. We did. And would have lots of participation, you yeah. know, in yeah. those. Exactly. We, and we would do rectal examinations mm-hmm. and examine the prostate. And we would, we would do that after we drew the PSA because there is some literature that suggests when you massage a prostate, you can increase the PSA. So we get the... We get the blood work first, we do the rectal exams, and we've kind of gotten away from that because of what I just said, in that there is controversy over the whole issue of screening for prostate cancer. I'm not gonna say it's not a good thing because it is a good thing, and some men it will save their lives, but on the other hand, you really have to be careful, and you can't just come out and say, for example, every man over the age of 50 should have their PSA checked every year automatically. You really need to have this shared decision-making about gotcha. it. And you kind of alluded to it, but you know, an increased PSA can be from different things, and it's not a 100% sure that's this is cancer. So right. it's more of looking at the big picture and more of a trend in that, finding out kind of what your PSA levels are over time versus just a one-time number. Very good point. A lot of times, and I've seen this in my practice literally hundreds of times, you'll check a PSA and you'll just wait a month and check it again and it's come down. And who knows, could be some inflammation or some infection in the prostate gland. This is controversial too. Because of that, some doctors give antibiotics to patients whose PSA is high, but that's not considered good practice. It's good just to wait a little mm-hmm. bit, let whatever it is settle down, recheck it again. And if you have a consistent trend, as Gina mentions, then you can act more more robustly, probably have less false positives when it, when it comes to prostate cancer screening. But it isn't a prostate biopsy, for example, I can tell you, I know of a few cases where men have died from a prostate biopsy. And this is not said to scare anybody away, but just to say there are serious complications with anything. Sure. Bleeding, infection, other kinds of things can pop up. Uh, that's a very rare complication, but it's something that needs to be uh, discussed before you enter into it. And then you mentioned testicular cancer. There really is no long-term studies showing decreased mortality for screening for testicular cancer. Okay. But, but here's a good time for me just to state something that's obvious, but maybe not to all physicians, and that doing a good physical exam is something that, as I'm getting to be an older physician now, I'm seeing less and less of that happening. Mm-hmm. But certainly uh, having the testicles examined is an easy thing to do when you're seeing your doctor or your nurse practitioner. Just like having your breast examined is, is an easy thing to do. Uh, checking the skin for melanoma is an easy thing to do. I'll mention one other thing, just looking at a patient's mouth, which is something I always do, is something that again, there's no randomized trial evidence, there's no long-term evidence, but there's studies out of India and other places where they have these folks called stomatologists that look in people's mouths and they show a decreased risk of oral cancers and a and, uh, decreased risk of dying from oral, ca- oral cancers. So one study of over 100,000 patients that had a 50% reduction. So these simple things, yes, there's no maybe data or long-term thing that you can point to mm-hmm. that, would, that would suggest from, a, from an epidemiologic or from a statistical standpoint we're, we're saving lives, but just common sense. Do, do a physical exam, you're gonna pick things up if you if your doctor does physical examinations on you and the cervix same thing you, know, you want a good pelvic exam every once in a while as far as cervix risk factors the main thing there is hpv virus mm-hmm. the hpv vaccinations and the widespread use of pap smears and hpv testing have really 
decrease the incidence of cervical cancer. We're down to about 22, 24,000 cases a year now. Oh, wow. Compared to, for example, breast cancer is 275,000 cases a year. So that just tells you the difference 10 times, more than 10 times. But you have to be careful there too, because ladies in their 20s have a high risk of HPV infection. And so we don't test HPV in ladies in their 20s. You don't start that until they're in their 30s. But I don't know, Gina, did you want to discuss cervical screening or do you want me to? No, I mean, that's, you're, you're okay. hitting it. You're so, right on it. All right, yeah. so let's, let's just discuss that briefly. So for cervical cancer, you want to start pap smears when a young lady's about 21. Mm-hmm. And just pap smears for that first decade for the reason that I mentioned. And then once that you turn 30, you've got two options. You can either do HPV testing every five years or you could do uh, pap smears every three years. Okay. And then once you get two negative HPVs or three negative PAPs, you can stop screening altogether, especially if a woman is monogamous and has one partner. Mm -hmm. The risk is very, very low. So that's kind of turned. It used to be, Gina, you probably know when you were younger, PAPs were every year. Every year, that's right. And now the incidence of the disease has gone down. Preventive measures such as the vaccine has helped a great deal. And this is a good time, too, to plug for, for the listeners to have any young adolescents, you know, particularly if they're under the age of 30, get HPV vaccinations, just like we're, we're, everybody's talking about COVID vaccinations. And of course, those are very important, but the HPV is very preventable. It prevents a number of things. It prevents cervical cancer, cervical warts, genital warts in general are all HPV related, anal warts, anal cancer, and surprisingly, cancer of the throat, oral pharyngeal cancers, are caused by HPV virus. Wow. And that, that also is a sexually transmitted disease. So it prevents a number of things. It's a very uh, safe vaccination. So I would strongly encourage those that are eligible to get HPV vaccinated as well. That goes for both male and female patients, yes. is that correct? Yes. Okay. It used to be girls only. That was the initial studies. They just did it in girls. But then since then, it's been validated in men as well. We kind of alluded to colon cancer screenings a little bit earlier, but to kind of talk about those guidelines, now they've come down on that age. It was 50 for first colonoscopy for years, and they've come down on that now, right? That also is a little bit controversial. And the reason is, if you look at the most data-driven organization, that's the U.S. Preventative Task Force, they combine all the data, randomized trial and observational, Generally, they recommend 50, but you're right. There's some, like I believe the American Cancer Societies is a little younger and the uh, GI societies are pushing a little bit younger. The important thing is to get screened. Sure. You, you could start at 45, you could start at 50, but it's, it is important to be screened because it has shown to, again, decrease colon cancer mortality mm-hmm. if you are screened. There are a number of ways to be screened. I'll just briefly mention, you can, you can do guaiac stool screening, you can do fecoaminochemical stool screening, which is called a FIT test. You can do colonoscopy, you can do CAT scans, you can do sigmoidoscopy, where just look at the lower end of the, of the colon, it's called sigmoidoscopy. Surprisingly, the one with the most data is the stool testing. Mm-hmm. That has randomized trial data that shows about a 35% mortality benefit if you do that once a year. 35%, that's a pretty good gain. Colonoscopy, which is the one most often recommended and is a very good screening test, doesn't have randomized trials. So it doesn't have the best level evidence, but observational studies, the second best level evidence, indicates that colonoscopy is very good. And colonoscopy, you just have to do once every 10 years. Mm -hmm. That's the advantage to that. And the stool test you do annually. However, the disadvantage to colonoscopy, just to mention it while we're talking about it, is you you have a day of prepping, you have the day of the procedure, so that's two days, you're out, you need anesthesia, so that's a hit. 
somebody probably needs to drive you home because you had anesthesia. Mm -hmm. There's about a one to two chance in a thousand of being perforated. In other words, through no fault of the operator, the colonoscope perforates the colon and then you need major surgery to fix that. Uh, so all those things factor in to the pluses and minuses and sure. the convenience of every 10 years versus the inconvenience of once a year. But the data is actually strongest for the stool studies and the fit test is probably considered the the best one now because you don't have to have any dietary preparation for the fit test. It's just a one-time deal. You send it in once a year. And if you do that, that's about the same as getting a colonoscopy every 10 years. And there can be, just like we talked about, you know, with mammography and things, there can be false positives. Yes. And potentially, I guess, false negatives as well. Correct. You know. yeah. But on the ones that you do have to have the dietary requirements, mm -hmm. That, that's a big, a big piece of that. If you don't follow the instructions and the dietary requirements, you could very well get false positives. And for a while, there. I think last year we had to stop it, Gina, because of the coronavirus, but we were doing free stool testing. There's one called Colaguard, which is actually a fit test with DNA testing. Associated. It's advertised on television. All. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah you see, see it. So, it. But <laughs> the problem is Colaguard costs about, I don't know, something like 50 times what the standard guaiac test cost. It's extremely expensive. The other downside of Colaguard is there's a very high number of false positives because it's so sensitive. It's picking up, you know, for example, you could have a little ulcer or something in your stomach and it's picking it up downstream. And a positive oh, okay. on one of those tests generally would take you to a colonoscopy, right? Yes, that's correct. Yeah. That's correct. So false positive, you've still got the colonoscopy. Right. But we handed out one year, it was probably 1,200 of those uh, kits that we passed out through the pharmacies and people picked up. But people were very reluctant to send them back in. You know, you, we would give out, like I say, 1,200 and we might get 200 right. that were sent back in. So when people get them and they read, oh, I've got to do this, this, and this, and I've got, you know, I've got to send this back in. And, and yeah. it's, you know, it takes, I mean, it, it does, you have to be committed, you know. True. To, to do it yeah three different samples and you gotta be comfortable doing a little dipstick on your own stool and some people aren't <laughs> comfortable doing sure that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah so i guess in that instance it's just probably a better idea to go ahead and get the colonoscopy yeah i think i mean the bottom line is if you're comfortable doing it and you want to avoid those colonoscopy side effects yes but if you're not then yes one or the other you just want to make sure you do one or the other. Right. One thing Dr. Kovic said at the very beginning with, with screenings, the whole goal there is to save lives mm -hmm. and to catch things early. Colon cancer is one of those cancers that if caught early, oh, you know, a lot of times that can be removed with surgery with no other treatment. Mm -hmm. So it's very, and, and you continue with your life forever. I mean, you yes. are cured right. at that point. And so it's really, really important to be serious about these screenings because they truly do save lives. You're almost doing yourself a disservice by not exactly, doing it. Exactly, so. exactly. Yes, well, if you catch a colon cancer with stage one, you're talking 90% survival. Mm -hmm. And if you wait till it's spread, it's essentially zero. Sure. So. You know, lung cancer, we've never, in the past, we've really, there's not been really screening tools mm -hmm. used, you know, to pick up lung cancer early. And it generally was caught just incidentally because you were doing something else and it was picked up on a chest X-ray mm -hmm. or and then investigated or you had a cough, you developed symptoms. And so then all of a sudden it becomes more diagnosis of what's wrong. Right. So we didn't really have any strong screening for lung cancer. But over the past few years, there's been 
more emphasis put on CT screening, right, for lung cancer. Yes, there was a pivotal study that was done that looked at patients that were at highest risk. If you had a 30-pack year smoking history, so a pack a year is number of packs you smoke by number of years. So if you smoke one pack a day for 30 years, that's a 30-pack year. Two packs a day for 15 years, that's a 30-pack year as well. Gotcha, okay. So it's 30-pack years or greater smoking, and somebody who has smoked within the last 15 years, and the age group was... 55 to 74, so roughly 55 to 75. Half the patients got screened with low-dose CAT scans of the chest, and half the patients did not. Astounding results. These were really earth-shattering results because they showed a 20, 25% decrease in the mortality from lung cancer. But And this is something that wasn't in any other screening. They showed a decrease in all-cause mortality. So if you take any reason to die, it was 6.7% lower. Oh, wow. And so that was astounding. And so we try to get this for patients. And it's surprising how people are resistant. You know, I'll, I'll see a patient that I'm seeing for some other cancer, for example, and I'll say, oh, I see you're a smoker and you've been smoking all your life. Let's get a low dose chest CT. Oh, you know, I don't want to get it. You know, it's almost like you have to have a 15 minute discussion with them and right. tell, tell them how important it is because because again, for the reasons Gina mentioned earlier, they're afraid of finding something and they don't want to take a couple hours and get a CAT scan. They might be afraid of the radiation dose, which is minimal on these low dose CAT scans. It's really uh, there's no risk at all to getting them from a radiation mm. dose perspective. Uh, but that study was was pivotal, and now all the insurers pay for it. And, you know, of course, if you're not insured, we have to work on issues there. But uh, Jackson-Madison County General Hospital, which I've been affiliated with 30 years, has always been good with working with indigen patients and trying to get what they need. So even in that setting, you know, we, we usually can get something done. Mm. And I think we're going to see more and more media attention, edu- community education and awareness on lung cancer screening. Sure. Because lung cancer is our number one cancer in volume that's diagnosed here at Jackson General, um, here in Tennessee, mm-hmm. and throughout the southeast. I mean, we're a very, very high lung cancer area. We do know that even catching lung cancer early makes a huge difference in the outcome. That's been proven. And so anything we can do. So I think the public is going to hear in the near future a lot more emphasis on lung cancer screening because we want to make a difference Mm -hmm. in that lung cancer number and the, the incidence of it, we can teach, talk about prevention, right. you know, all day, but we want to look at decreasing the, the mortality, you yeah. know, from it. It might be worth just mentioning briefly that some patients are afraid of lung cancer surgery. It's a big operation and open the chest up. And some patients just can't have lung cancer surgery, but we have the technology here in Jackson to do something called stereotactic lung radiation therapy, where these small lung tumors that Gina was mentioning that get picked up on CT scan have about a 90% rate of cure when picked up early with this new technique of radiation too. So you're not always pigeonholed into surgery, especially if you've got COPD or you're elderly or you have some other problem that's very effective. Yeah. You know, between us both sitting in this room, looking at it from an operations and a clinical medical perspective, we have a lot of years sure. in oncology of between course. the two of us. And we can truly say... 100% that screening, early detection make a difference mm-hmm. in outcomes. I mean, it really does. Most definitely. And, you know, that's what we want to get across to yeah. everybody is this is just not something you read in a textbook or you right. hear about. 
Right. You know, it truly does save lives and makes a difference. Gives people more quality life, longer life. You know, it, it does make a difference. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're interested in becoming screened, I've actually put a link in the description to the West Tennessee Healthcare's website. You can go and see what kind of screenings are offered and get set up to, to have a screening from there. Yeah, we've got cancer awareness and risk factor kind of tools on the Kirkland Cancer Center website mm-hmm. that people can go in and they can fill out and it kind of identifies their risk for certain types of cancers. Perfect. And so that kind of can help steer people toward what kind of yeah. screenings that they need for themselves. Absolutely. So obviously in the time this is being recorded on January 28th of 2021, we're in the throes of COVID-19. I'm sure we're all tired of hearing about socially distance, stay home, all this kind of stuff. But has COVID-19 brought any kind of implications towards screenings? What are the implications of COVID-19 due to its implications on screening? and in the future of cancer diagnosis? Well, I can talk about it from what we've actually seen here sure. in West Tennessee Healthcare. Um, you know, we did have to, for a short period of time, we stopped some elective procedures. Mm-hmm. We also, you know, limited people coming in, facilities, and then and people were advised to stay home and things. So we did very much see a decrease in women coming in for mammography, in screening colonoscopy. So Mm -hmm. we very much have seen a decrease in that. And so in saying that over the next few years, we're going to see some impact from what what we've missed during that time. And I know there's already studies out there that's talking about that. Yes, and uh, I think it was in August, ASCO, which is our professional organization of clinical oncologists, really recommended stopping all screenings. They just recommended it. Since then, that's been reversed. Mm -hmm. And people are, I would say at this point, almost screening back at the regular rate, but we just got over a surge of COVID-19. In the last month, it's coming down, thankfully, in in the last week or two, but we had very high numbers nationally and here in Tennessee. There are things you can do to mitigate that and still stay on top of screening. Let's say we have another surge in a few months. You never know what's going to happen with this virus. But the one thing you can do on the colon is just do the fecal Mm -hmm. test at home. You don't have to leave your house for that. And at least you're being screened. On melanoma, we have telemedicine available, both in radiation oncology and in medical oncology. And if you just have a good screen and somebody that can help you, point, you can show us a spot on your skin. And that's something that potentially could be screened through telemedicine. And, and I think that's very helpful. You know, breast screening requires mammography. Lung cancer screening requires a CAT scan. And you just have to socially distance, wear a mask, suck it up, and just come in and, and go in the corner of the waiting room. And, and right. it really is very safe if you follow all the social distancing guidelines. And I would echo what Gina said, that even in the a pandemic, it's important to get screened. Of course. And just find and navigate what's your most comfortable, you know, which test you're most comfortable with. Because it, with most things, you have at least some option. And I think, you know, the theory is that people will cancel an appointment, Mm -hmm. you know, or did cancel appointment. And then human nature, it's, it's, you know, hard to get back in there to schedule it. You know, we had to cancel teeth cleaning and, you know, all of those every six month things that we all do for screenings. You cancel those. Well, you've got to call back and make that appointment again right. Take the initiative to do that if you for put off doing that then all of a sudden you put off a, for a year mm-hmm. now because we're already getting close to a year of this right. here in this area and then you put it off a year 
What if you put it off another six months, another six months? Mm -hmm. And so that's the fear that we have is that a year, two years from now, we're going to see higher stage cancers that potentially could have been caught at a lower stage if we had gotten back in our screening routines. Like I said, I've linked the website below to check out how to get screened and where to sign up. This has been insanely informative for myself and for listeners. Thank you guys so much for coming in today, and thank you for listening to another episode of We Talk Health.